Amen. Forevermore indeed. If you have your Bibles, would you open up with me to, pay, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to be in pages 30, verses 37 through 50 this morning. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. That's page 1239 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, why don't you just open up there. You can follow along there in the Pew Bible with us. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. And as you're opening up there, I want to say how excited I am here in just a couple of weeks. September 9th, we're going to have what we're going to call our High Attendance Sunday. A couple things we want to happen. First of all, we hope that each of you will invite someone to come to church. Uh, someone who you've been thinking about inviting or praying about inviting. It'll be a great Sunday if, for somebody's first Sunday. Here's the other thing we want to happen, though. We want all of our people to be here on the same day. Now, that'd be a miracle, wouldn't it? If everybody was here on the same day. I, I joke around a lot uh, in the book of Revelation. You know, it says there will be no more sea. So the reason for that is so everybody will come to church. There's no water for them to go off to on the weekend. They can just stay right there at church. The Lord's going to make sure everybody comes to church. New heavens and new earth. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading the words of our God. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37, John writes, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself speaking to you. We'll begin with the first half, second half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out, verse 44, and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And we pray even now, God, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word, God, and to be changed by it this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. I am a keen observer, a collector, if you will, in my heart and my mind, of bumper stickers. Some bumper stickers I appreciate for their ironic value. I uh, am always on the lookout for a good bumper sticker that makes me chuckle. And so at your own discretion, if you see a good bumper sticker, you're welcome to text me a picture. Uh, I do very much enjoy them. Some are just good, you know, I just like what they say. And others strike me in a unique way at a certain time. One of these days, I think I'm going to get myself a Volkswagen van just so I can have a bunch of bumper stickers. The other day, I'd been to lunch downtown with some church members, and I was on my way back to the church, riding right through downtown Gadsden. And as I pulled up to a stoplight behind another car, I noticed a sticker that I thought at first glance was a Christian bumper sticker. You know how things just sometimes look Christian? It just had a Christian look to it. You know, I could just tell. And I read it, and as I began to read it, I realized, yeah, this is a Christian book bumper sticker. It began with language we all know, in the beginning. And then I was thrown off, because this was not a Christian bumper sticker. It said, in the beginning, man created God. In the beginning, man created God. My guess is the person with this bumper sticker on the back of their Prius is not watching First Baptist Church Gadsden this morning. But if you are, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not here to judge. I disagree with your interpretation of Genesis 1-1, but that's okay. I, I'm not here so we can try to rid all the guys of all the atheists and skeptics and everything else. I'll say it to say this. That what we've known now for decades as the Bible Belt is eroding quicker and quicker. And furthermore, as a pastor, one of the things I hear from folks who are skeptical about Christianity is the argument that widespread unbelief, that there are skeptics, right, disproves Christianity. That most people in the world aren't Christians disproves the Scriptures, disproves Christianity. Oftentimes people say that. Well, well, why then is it only a certain group of people? I have a good friend who says it all the time. You know, if I hadn't been born in Alabama, I, would, I might not even know the name of Jesus and for many reasons among many reasons that's one reason why he doesn't believe the scriptures are true you know in many ways these days unbelief has become the belief of the day the belief du jour is skepticism it's almost understood that we don't believe I, I think Tim Keller's done really good and important work among others in showing to us that skepticism is a set of beliefs, that, that it does require faith to not believe, that there are presumptions and presuppositions and axioms and, 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 and things we believe just because we believe them that lead to skepticism and unbelief. We recognize, though, that that has become the belief of the day. Unbelief has become the belief of the day. I think uh, the indie rock band Vampire Weekend sums up the way a lot of modern people feel. Listen to these lyrics from their song, Unbelievers. If I'm born again, I know that the world will disagree. I want a little grace, but who's going to say a little grace for me? 
We know the fire awaits unbelievers, all of the sinners the same. Girl, you and I will die unbelievers bound to the tracks of the train. I think that sums up in so many ways the way a lot of modern people, a lot of people I talk to feel about unbelief. That, that if, if they wanted to believe, they couldn't. That they feel trapped in where they are. This morning, I want to take some time to think about unbelief. You know, oftentimes as a pastor, I'm always talking to y'all about faith, about believing, about trusting. But how often do we look at the flip side? How often, how often do we take time to address the concerns of someone who disagrees with us? How often do we really look at the bumper stickers? We automatically assume they're all Christian, or do we really dig in deeper and realize there are some people who think that God is a fairy tale, that God is a man-made fantasy, that it's a way to control people, or that religion is just made up, that religion is inherently regress on society. How often do we really look about that? Look at that. Well, I want to look today to what the scriptures teach us about unbelief. I want us to see what those teachings then do for our own faith as Christians, but for those of you who are skeptics or unbelievers who are either here or watching or listening, I hope that as you see these things, as you understand these things, uh, that perhaps you'll begin to think about faith in another way. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning about unbelief. God is sovereign over unbelief. God is sovereign over unbelief. In other words, skepticism is not something that takes God by surprise. Oftentimes when folks disagree with me on something, they they sort of approach it with some trepidation. Now, not all of y'all. You know who you are. But the, the reality is... Some people, when they disagree with me on something, they kind of come, especially an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, they kind of approach it with just a little bit of trepidation. They're they're sort of soft about it. You know, they want to say, you know, I hate to say this, but I don't believe in God, or I don't really ascribe to the sort of Christianity that you ascribe to. And I think one reason they're so careful in saying that is because so oftentimes people of faith act scandalized by unbelief. You don't believe in God. I mean, you know, we're just, just shocked by the thought that somebody might not believe in God. Or that maybe somebody might not think exactly what we think. And while that might be true oftentimes of Christians, that's never true of God. That's never true of God. God knows your heart. God knows that human beings are wicked. God knows that not everyone believes in Him. And so the Scripture then, God Himself anticipates unbelief the scripture teaches us that people will not believe that there are those who don't believe we ought not to be scandalized by the scripture anticipates unbelief that's exactly why john is 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 quoting isaiah here he's he's quoting isaiah listen to what he says when jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself from them Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now there's a reality that John is going to have to address here, the fact that though Jesus did all these signs, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the light come into the world, he's got to address the fact that so many people didn't believe. 
So many of God's own people rejected the Messiah. John's dealing with this here. That's one reason I'm glad Nathan chose John 3 to to read from this morning because John works so primarily in themes that sort of recur throughout his gospel and the theme of unbelief is sort of introduced to us in so many ways in John 3. Certainly in the most memorable way in John's gospel we see it there in John chapter 3. So John is, is trying to address the reality that so many did not believe. And what does he say? They still did not believe in him. And then verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And who has the arm of the Lord? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, what John is saying is God himself anticipated and foresaw and knew that there would be some who would not believe. And so as Christians, I I would argue, and as a a skeptic, I I wouldn't be thrown off by widespread unbelief, even of the Jewish people, because God and the Bible have clearly stated that it would happen. In other words, we we can't blame God for something he knew was going to happen. He knew that this was coming. We, We can't say, well, this means it's not true when the Bible says it's going to happen. The Scripture anticipates unbelief. But also, we recognize that unbelief is a sign of God's judgment. Unbelief is a sign of God's judgment. Now, John's taking us into some difficult waters for us to wade into. Listen to what he says next. Therefore, what? They could not believe, John says. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is a difficult passage for us, because we're all people here who who believe in the free agency of man, that, that man is able to make moral decisions on his own, that we have choice in life. And so as we look to this passage, we begin to feel like this, this feels sort of like fatalism. It sort of like there's nothing these people could do besides this. But I want you to understand this passage, and I want you to understand what John is saying here. We aren't only judged for our unbelief. Also, continued unbelief is God's judgment. Now, listen to that very carefully. We aren't only judged for our unbelief. Continued unbelief is a sign of God's judgment. That is, the hardening of hearts... The, 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 the hardening of hearts, God's judicial hardening of hearts, the blinding of eyes. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. This isn't occurring with spiritually neutral human beings. This is, like I mentioned, what D.A. Carson calls a judicial hardening. God is hardening the hearts and blinding the eyes of those who are actively choosing unbelief and sin. That is... That God is not judging and He is not blinding and He's not hardening the hearts of morally neutral people, people who are just simply neutral. God is hardening the hearts of people who are morally culpable before Him, of sinners. He's hardening them in their sins. So a sign of God's judgment then is continued unbelief. God is judging that sin and simultaneously people are choosing unbelief. A good example of this in the Bible is the example of Pharaoh. Example of Pharaoh. 
where God is sovereign over Pharaoh's unbelief. And he hardens Pharaoh's heart, even as Pharaoh is acting as a free agent, making free choices to enslave the people of Israel. And so we have to recognize this as Christians. This is, this is a passage where we recognize then that God is sovereign even over unbelief. And now listen, every one of us here in the room right now are squirming a little. It's just a little uncomfortable to think about. And the reason is we almost always think about God's sovereignty in negative terms. We almost always consider it in a negative light. I, I think that's a great disservice to the Lord's people and a great disservice to a sovereign and holy God to always understand this beauty of who God is, His kingship, His authority, His sovereignty, to always understand it in negative terms, terms because God's sovereignty over unbelief is good news. And think about this. My dad told me this a long time ago. Y'all know Chris Alexander. He's not a theologian. My dad told me a long, long time ago, he said, Matt, he said, I want you to know, I, I totally believe that salvation belongs to the world because I know in my own sinfulness I never would have chosen God. I knew that God had to speak into my life and speak into my heart. You know, for many of us who grew up in the church, who grew up like my kids grow up, my kids are little church mice, you know what I mean? We took the Lord's Supper a year or two ago, and M. Watts couldn't figure out why she couldn't take the Lord's Supper, and we got home, and Whitney said, M. Watts, only Christians, only believers are allowed to take the Lord's Supper. And she said, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? You know, to her, she's growing up in church. She's here every time the doors are open. She's part of whatever this is, and this is full of Christians. And so I'm a Christian in her mind. And many of us grew up that way. And praise be to God for believers who, who are able to not have big seasons of sin and not have long stretches and periods of unbelief. Praise God for His grace in your life. But know this, that even you, even those of you who have had that sort of religious experience in your life, God had to overcome your sin. You see, we look about this in negative terms because we often feel like we did something to earn our salvation. But all of us ought to have the heart knowing God is sovereign over our unbelief. He's able to overcome unbelief. He's able to reach you in your rebellion. He's able to extend mercy to you and your obstinance. And no matter where you fall on theological spectrums, we can all agree as Baptists that salvation belongs to the Lord. And God is able to reach in. He's able to harden hearts, but He's also able to soften hearts. God is sovereign over unbelief. But if we stop there, we're not given the entirety of the biblical picture. If we stop there, then, then what we're going to eventually become is a sort of hyper-Calvinist or a sort of fatalist, Right? that just sees everything as predetermined and we have no actions or right to stand whatsoever. But here's the other reality. It's our second point this morning. Not only is God sovereign over unbelief, but also man is responsible for unbelief. Man is responsible for unbelief. Now, John's going to introduce us to the other side of the coin. This is what he says, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
You see, while we recognize God's sovereignty and rejoice in God's sovereignty, we nonetheless must also recognize man's responsibility. John is making it 100% clear here that humans are free moral agents who make conscious decisions of their own free will not to believe. Paul makes the same argument in Romans 1 that you see enough in the world to know that you ought to honor God, but you choose not to. Anytime the Bible talks about man's responsibility, it almost always balances it out with the sovereignty of God. And anytime the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God, it almost always balances it out with man's responsibility. It, it really reflects well my, my position. I, let me rephrase that. My position, I hope, reflects well what God's taught in the Bible. I adhere to what you might call compatibilism, which is the idea that God is sovereign over our free decisions and that he's working through our free decisions at the same time in such a way that it's, they're compatible with one another. What leads to unbelief? Here John's saying unbelief can come from fear. Not believing in God can come from fear. John's saying that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and that the rejection of Isaiah's words in the Old Testament were cut from the exact same cloth as a rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah there in his own day. And therefore cut from the exact same cloth as modern American materialist skepticism. It's all cut out of the same cloth. And so always unbelief can come from fear. Unbelief can rise out of fear. Fear of what we will lose. Fear of facing God. Hey, think about what's being said here. Here he says that out of fear they did not confess their belief. There's a lot of that in this world. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. But of adoption, he says. In other words, God brings us into his family. We don't have to be afraid when we're with the Lord. But I think this is the second thing I'm going to mention here is what I think is the primary source of unbelief in our lives, in our times, and that's man-centeredness. Whose wisdom do we value? The Bible says here they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so the question becomes, whose wisdom do we value? Now, now, don't mishear me and don't think that I don't recognize that there are legitimate intellectual concerns that people have and that lead to unbelief. But so often what you see happen and what you hear from people is that they're not even willing to open their minds again. Once they've received this enlightenment of, of American secularism, modern secularism, they, they, they have totally closed their minds so often to the thought that there even could be a God. And so they value then the wisdom of man more than they value the wisdom of God, even though they're just gaping holes in a secular worldview. What, what, what do we do with things like love and wonder and joy? What do we do with those things if materialism is all that exists? So many people really are asking, what if cultured despisers think ill of us? What if other, my skeptical friends, think that I'm silly but really, when you think about it, wouldn't it make sense for God to disagree with us? Wouldn't it make sense that if there is a God, that He would disagree with us? 
And let me ask you this for a Christian. What if Jesus is calling you through his word to disagree with your friends or your family or with your culture or with your political party? Do you value God's glory or man's glory more? Are we withholding aspects of our lives from God just because we value the glory of man? Man-centeredness fights against faith. Man-centeredness fights against belief. Why? Because God is demonstrating to us through the gospel His glory and His wisdom and our foolishness through sin. Our foolishness through sin. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. The fact that God is sovereign over unbelief is good news for you, but also the fact that you are responsible for your own unbelief is good news for you today. Why? Because right now, at this very moment, at this very moment, by God's grace, you can choose to believe in Jesus. You have been given by God the freedom to choose to believe in Jesus. By His grace, and I, I believe at the same time that you begin to believe in Jesus, God is working in your heart by His grace to empower you to do that. But here's the reality. You have the choice to believe. You have the choice to believe. And that's good news because this is our final point this morning. Final point is this. Jesus is ready. Jesus stands ready to forgive your unbelief. Jesus stands ready ready to forgive your unbelief. The title of this series of sermons through the Gospel of John, we titled it, Come and See Jesus. And that's because that's one of the themes in John, is oftentimes people are saying, come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. And as John sums up Jesus' public ministry in this passage, notice what Jesus says. He says, whoever sees me, verse 45, sees him who sent me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. As a pastor, I often ask myself the question, why does the world, and not just Christians, but people of other religions as well, why does the world remain drawn to in a lot of senses, enamored with Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Why do you rarely have the most hardened skeptics willing to criticize the words of Jesus himself? Y'all ever notice that? It's like that old Gandhi quote, it's not Jesus I have a problem with, it's his followers. Have you ever noticed that very rarely even the most hardened of skeptics are going to be critical of Jesus of Nazareth? Now, there's a reason for that. Folks over the years have tried to come up with all sorts of reasons why, why he's just a good man, etc., etc. But maybe it's because Jesus is who he said he is. Maybe we're a lot less frustrated with God than we think we are because we're so drawn to Jesus. Could it be that you're drawn to God more than you think? Could it be that Jesus really is what he says he is? Could it be that the claims of Jesus of Nazareth are true? That if you have seen him, you have seen God. Jesus goes on to say, the Father sent him with a commandment. He says, I've not spoken on my own authority, verse 49, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father 
has told me. What did God send Jesus to speak? He sent him to speak eternal life. And the only way to receive eternal life is to know Jesus Christ. Jesus stands ready to forgive you for your unbelief. We, we serve a, a true, a loving Savior. He, he doesn't just look at our, our bumper stickers and frown with his arms crossed, tisking at us. Well, if you had been there when man was created, Jesus could say, you would know that in the beginning, God created you, not the other way around. Jesus doesn't sit there doing that. Jesus sits there with open arms, ready for those who are willing to tell themselves that He's not there, waiting for them to come home, ready to forgive their unbelief. Could it be that all the fears, all the worries, all the doubts of your life find their resolution in Jesus? Could it be that discontent that you feel inside yourself finds its resolution in Jesus? Could it be that the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did are compelling to you because even now, even today, He stands near you? Perhaps as you grope in the darkness, you're not as far from Him as you think that you are. Maybe He's been there all along, waiting, ready, willing, with arms open wide, the end of which are hands in which nails were driven through for you, for your sin. He died for you, for your sin. Today, 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 Jesus stands ready to forgive you, to accept you today, and His offer is eternal life. Brothers and sisters, you are not tied to the tracks of the train. You are not bound to continue in this unbelief. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what those around you think. It doesn't matter what glory you'll be forfeiting. And if you're worried about meeting a holy God, in one sense you ought to be, but in another sense, because of the blood of Jesus, today you can have perfect standing with a holy God despite your sin. Today, 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 I offer you this invitation. If you've never trusted Jesus for the first time after this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ. I thank you for his gospel. And God, I pray that this morning you would open hearts and minds to receive your word, Lord, and to be changed by it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.